A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. This week on the show, we're checking in with the latest on COVID, and we're going to hear about how we could avoid a global food shock that might be coming our way as a result of the war in Ukraine. We're also going to the coldest place in the solar system. And in vampire news, we're hearing about how transfusions of young blood can have a rejuvenating effect. And we're chatting with the composer Hannah Peel and hearing some of her new album. And remember, if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a massive 20% discount off of a subscription to New Scientist. The link is newscientist.com slash pod20. Let's start with Ukraine. The aspect we wanted to talk about this week is food. So Ukraine is often referred to as the breadbasket of Europe, and 10% of global wheat comes from the country. So there are real fears that the attack on Ukraine could cause big food shortages worldwide. Michael, you've been reporting on this. Yes, so food prices are already going up because of these fears that Ukraine might not export any food this year. That obviously means we all pay more, but the poorest people in the world are the ones who are going to be hit hardest. But it turns out there's actually a really simple way to prevent a major food shock. All we've got to do is stop turning so much wheat, maize and other crops into biofuels, such as the ethanol that's added to the petrol we put in our cars. Mm, To give us a sense of the scale, could that really compensate for the potential loss of exports from Ukraine? Actually, it could easily compensate. So in in fact, the US and Europe would only have to halve their production of ethanol to free up just as much grain as is usually exported by the Ukraine. But wouldn't cutting biofuel production therefore increase our greenhouse gas emissions? So, you know, the argument is we need biofuels to tackle global warming. Well, this is a really crazy thing. So in fact, study after study has shown that biofuels don't reduce emissions by much and in fact often increase them and we also know that they're an absolute disaster for wildlife because for instance forests are being cut down to make space for growing yet more biofuels so in fact stopping subsidies for biofuels which we as taxpayers pay for by the way (laughs) would lower food prices it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions and it would help conserve biodiversity so it's win 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 (laughs) well let's hope some political leaders are listening now moving away from ukraine the other story you've reported for us this week michael was about young blood and its rejuvenating effects. Yes, so back in 2012, researchers in California showed that if you join up the blood supply of old and young mice, it reverses cognitive declines in those older mice. And this obviously led to a huge amount of interest in exactly what it is in young blood that has these anti-aging effects. And there have been various sort of trials ongoing, such as putting transfusions of young blood into old people to see if it can treat Parkinson's and so on. Obviously, blood is this incredibly complex mixture of different things. So sort of isolating the key component isn't easy. But uh, there's been growing evidence that 
little bits of cells known as extracellular vesicles are important. So remind us again what, what extracellular vesicles are. Yeah, it's a horrible term, isn't it? Uh, so uh, our cells are surrounded by this very flexible membrane and bits of that can pinch off forming these little balloons that are containing a little bit of the fluid from inside the cells. And that fluid contains things such as proteins and RNAs. Now, when people first discovered extracellular vesicles, they thought they were a way for cells to get rid of waste, but it turns out that they're actually a form of intercellular communication. So they can travel around the body in the blood and fuse with other cells and the components inside the extracellular vesicles can change what those cells do. Now, the new part is that a team in Spain, they've taken extracellular vesicles from stem cells from young mice, they put them in old mice, and they've shown that it has various rejuvenating effects. Okay, and that begs the question, what, what kinds of rejuvenating effects? So in this study, they looked mainly at physical things. So the mice became stronger, their coordination improved, they could exercise longer without getting tired, and their fur also regrew much faster. Yeah, I, I would take all of those things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the thing that really struck me in your article, Michael, was the improved grip strength, because grip strength is a, a real indicator of healthy or unhealthy ageing in humans, isn't it? Um, I, I was wondering, did the mice live longer too? Well, that's what the team's looking at as, as we speak. So in the first experiment, they only gave two injections and then stopped, and the, the effects sort of gradually faded after a couple of months. So now they're giving the mice regular injections to see if they, they live longer. So if this does work, like how feasible would this be as a treatment for people? Would we really be able to get regular injections of extracellular vesicles? Well, it's it's more feasible than regular transfusions of blood, mm. that, that's for sure. And uh, there are there are several groups around the world sort of working on this. Obviously, we're still trying to find out what exactly is inside these cellular vesicles that has these effects. But people are also looking at treatments involving them too. So the team in Spain, for instance, are planning to apply them to the skin of old people to see if they improve healing. That's obviously safer than injecting them into the blood. So as a first step, it should give us some idea of, of whether it works. I remember when this story first happened, when this discovery was first made, and then clinics in the US immediately started selling young blood plasma. And I just looked it up and you can still do this legally. It's $5,500 for one litre of young human blood plasma. Or if you want to buy, if you get two litres, you can get it for $8,000. <laughs> but, but look, the point is, uh, like you say, Michael, it's really important to proceed <laughs> cautiously and carefully find out what's going on. But it is striking that you can still buy this stuff in the US. Now let's talk COVID because this week it, and over the last couple of weeks, it feels like it's really starting to pick up again, isn't it? Yeah, and I, you know, anecdotally, hearing of a lot of people in our social circles at the moment who are coming down with it, but um, that's not just anecdotal and it, it's not just the UK. There is a worldwide uptick now, particularly in China. So if you look globally across all reported cases, new infections have gone up 8% week on week and that might not sound like a big deal, but actually weekly cases worldwide had been declining since the end of January. Right. And uh, is this all down to Omicron then? Yeah. So in some respects, so it's kind of um, more to do with now that we know that Omicron is here, it's much more transmissible. It's in some respects is milder. Countries are basically having to work out what to do about it. And, and what those countries are doing is affecting whether they have a surge or not. So some countries like the UK, they've decided 
that because Omicron is so transmissible and in the UK anyway, people who catch it are less likely to end up in hospitalisation. It's time to lift all mitigation measures. And so that's going to be a large reason of why we're seeing increases in the UK. So last week, nearly 400,000 people in the UK tested positive for the virus and that was 56% higher than the week before and actually the week before was 39% higher than the week before that so you can see how since um, the requirement to self-isolate was lifted in late February things are just stepping up. Yeah living with COVID is the UK isn't the only country doing this this uh, living with COVID method is it? No quite a few countries are doing it I I think you know the UK plans were trumpeted as being the first but actually I I think that probably goes to Sweden and Denmark they started sort of lifting restrictions in this kind of way early on and the general uh, pattern with these living with COVID plans is, is generally that it's not that it's the end of all measures it's just that they're kind of being taken out of legal requirements so you know if possible you still are advised to stay home if you have covid it's just you're not legally required to anymore and and that's something that lots of countries are doing and then there are countries like Iceland, which in some respects are sort of um, taking it further. Um, its health ministry has announced that the country is actually aiming for herd immunity through infection. Yeah, well, I thought we'd railed against herd immunity on the podcast mm. over the months and years, uh, you know, as a tactic for tackling COVID-19. Yeah, so it's kind of a different meaning of the word herd immunity, because I think most people interpret that to mean that, you know, if an enough people get it, then it will stop spreading because we'll, we'll mostly be immune. And we know that immunity from vaccines and infection both wane. And what that means is that you can get COVID multiple times, even if you've been vaccinated, even if you've been vaccinated and been affected, you can still catch it. But the hope is that you never catch it or you shouldn't catch it quite as badly if you've had it before, if you've been vaccinated. And, yeah. and that's what Iceland is sort of banking on, is that you can build up a level of herd immunity that prevents against severe infection or fatal infection rather than trying to actually stop an infection altogether that way. You were saying it's a different meaning of herd immunity. I think it it doesn't exist. You know, herd immunity only works if you stop people getting infected and then in that way stop the vulnerable getting infected. So, I mean, I can understand Iceland just saying, oh, we're going to give up trying to control it. But to claim this is a, a meaningful strategy just seems crazy to me. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that one of the big concerns here is is for the people who, who don't respond well to vaccines or, or can't get vaccinated, they're likely to also be vulnerable to a COVID infection. And this strategy holds nothing for them, not really any protection at all. And what about in China and Hong Kong? Because they're, they are having a nightmare, aren't they? Yeah, and, and so this is kind of part of this broader picture of what did the countries who've been going after zero COVID do now that, you know, that just doesn't seem possible with Omicron. Omicron is so transmissible that the previous measures that could sort of stamp out outbreaks in countries that include New Zealand and, and China just aren't as effective. And so um, Michael's reminded me earlier, actually, that New Zealand They've managed to get quite a good exit strategy, um, which is heavily based on vaccination. And so far, that seems to be really working for them. Whereas Hong Kong is in a much worse position. Um, You've been covering this, Michael. That's right. So Omicron has caused a public health disaster in Hong Kong. So there's a really high death rate relative to the population. And the main reason is very simple. It's that they haven't vaccinated most of their elderly. So just 30% of the over 80s are vaccinated, for instance. And the reason for that is that unlike New Zealand, they didn't change their policy. They stuck with this zero COVID policy and they've been focusing on testing to try and stop the virus spreading rather than vaccination to protect people if it does spread. 
So the big question now is what happens in mainland China? So China's done a little bit better at vaccinating the elderly with, I think it's got around 60% of over 80s vaccinated, but it's been using its own vaccines, which are less effective than the mRNA ones that have been used elsewhere. So there's a there's a big question mark over what will happen if the virus starts spreading really wide, widely there. And so Penny, what is the situation in China? It does look like a surge is, is starting. So um, this week, China has been reporting new national records for daily new cases of the coronavirus. The numbers are actually quite small, really, for a huge country, especially when you compare them to the UK. So on Tuesday, China reported a bit over 5,000 new cases. But that's still like a lot for a country that's trying to eliminate the virus still. So to try to stamp out that surge, lockdowns and partial lockdowns have now been brought in that are affecting over 30 million people. Okay, thanks for the update, both of you. Um, We'll post a link about the story about Iceland into the show notes. Did you know that at New Scientist we have our very own learning platform? Well, if you didn't, you do now. With hours of online learning available at the click of a button, you can enjoy expert-led courses at New Scientist Academy. You can choose from a range of short or long high-impact courses with topics including cosmology, consciousness, quantum physics, health and well-being, genetics, greener living and neuroscience. Whatever you're curious to learn, there's plenty to keep you fueled with inspiration and knowledge. Not just that, we're also currently offering you the chance to snap up a huge 50% off any one of our online courses today. You can access your course on any internet accessible device and better still, complete it at your own pace. Check out all of our courses at newscientist.com slash courses. And to redeem 50% off any of our courses, that's any of our courses, simply use coupon code POD50 at the checkout. Offer ends March 31st, 2022. And I just want to tell you about our first instant expert event of the year. It's taking place on Saturday, the 26th of March in London. It's Frontiers of Cosmology from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., You'll have six expert speakers to guide you on a 13.8 billion year journey through the cosmos. And on the way, you'll learn what happened at the Big Bang and the nature of the universe's missing 95%. So go to newscientist.com slash cosmology for full details. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. I see it's becoming a habit on the show to get off planet, just stop thinking about Earth. So the next item on the list for today is the coldest place in the solar system. Yes. Any guesses as to where that might be? Um, You want to go like Pluto, right? Right out to the far edges. Yeah. No, 
Oh. <laughs> but yeah, you want to go. That's where I'm trying to get you to say. <laughs> but no, the coldest place in the solar system is actually uh, on the moon, very close to us, um, mm. and particularly in some craters on the moon. Right. So how cold are we talking here? Well, so the craters are, don't get any sunlight. So these are the craters that are on the South Pole generally. And so because they don't ever get sunlight or certainly don't get any direct sunlight, they get down to about minus 170 Celsius. But then there's these other craters. These are the ones that have just been discovered. They don't even get any reflected light off the rim of the crater. So those ones are at minus 250 Celsius. So that's colder even than Pluto, because that, of course, still gets light from the sun, even though it's very far away. Obviously, that's an amazing discovery. Is it useful <laughs> to us in any way? Uh, it is, because, you know, having a deep freezer there is mm. a good location to for water ice to collect, not just water ice, but other exotic kinds of ice, um, which people or robots living on the moon can then go and mine and use for their missions. And there's going to be a rover going to the South Pole next year to to this Shackleton crater. So, you know, that's been in the news recently. It's named after Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton. But remember that name as that is probably almost certainly where the first moon base will be built. So I have a question, which is how cold are the craters on Pluto? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are not. I, I did look this up. Actually, and it's about they're about 220 Celsius. But um, I, I don't know if there's any double shaded craters on Pluto where it'd get even colder. But yeah, there you go. We're still colder than craters on Pluto, Michael. Our next story brings us back down to Earth with a bump. It's about the discovery of yet another shocking knock on effect from Australia's massive black summer wildfires. These apocalyptic fires occurred two years ago and they caused destruction on a scale never seen before. Now, scientists have found that the fires even damaged the ozone layer. Rowan spoke to our Australian reporter, Alice Klein, about the finding. Alice, so you were there when the black summer fires were raging on. What was it like? Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. I was lucky enough to be in inner Sydney, which was mostly protected from the fires. But even there, I kind of felt like I was in, you know, those colonies in The Handmaid's Tale? You know, the the sort of those bleak, polluted wastelands that are no longer fit for human habitation. Yeah. Because, you know, the skies, they were either black or red. There was just the constant smell of smoke. Uh, Sometimes there was ash raining down. And the thing I remember most, it was just really eerie and quiet because I think everyone was just kind of bunkering down in their houses. It's hard to get your head around how much damage they caused. But um, we got some figures here to try to put it into perspective. So the fire burned through an area of bushland the size of Ireland, the whole the whole of Ireland. Yeah. Um, and over 3,000 homes were destroyed. 33 people died. And there's that figure of 3 billion animals estimated to have been displaced or killed by the fire. That's right. And now scientists have discovered that the fires actually blasted out so much smoke that some of it actually broke into the stratosphere and damaged the ozone layer. Now, normally smoke from wildfires can't actually get up into the stratosphere because there's this natural ceiling, um, which is the tropopause. But these fires were so ferocious, they actually generated their own thunderstorms. So if you think about it, you've got this fire, you've got a thunderstorm above, spitting lightning and everything, and then smoke from that is going up into the stratosphere. And then once the smoke actually gets into the stratosphere, it's able to catalyse chemical reactions that destroy ozone molecules. Wow. And do we know how much damage it did to the ozone layer? 
Yeah, so an analysis done by some scientists has found that it depleted levels of ozone over the middle section of the southern hemisphere where Australia is by about 13%. Right, and uh, yeah, you don't want to lose your ozone layer in a place like Australia, uh, even 13% of it. Has it recovered? Yeah, so fortunately the ozone levels dipped for about nine months and then now they've gone back to normal. But there is concern that because climate change is expected to make these you know, massive wildfires more frequent, that we're just going to get more and more assaults on the ozone layer, which we obviously mm. need to protect us from ultraviolet radiation. And all this, this new stuff about the fires is coming a week after you've just had a national emergency in Australia because of the floods, like record-breaking floods. So yeah, you're, having, you're getting a bit of a kicking at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it just seems pretty cruel after all the heartache of the fires that we went through. And now we've had these terrible floods up and down the East Coast that have, as you say, have been declared a national emergency. So they they started in Brisbane, which had more than London's total annual rainfall dumped on it in just a week, which is pretty crazy. They were calling it a rain bomb. And then it, it spread all the way down the coast to Sydney. And it's just, it is quite hard to explain just how much water there's been. So, for example, in Lismore in northern New South Wales, the water in its river went so high that it broke the record from 1954 by over two metres. So not just, you know, a few centimetres, but over two metres over a record from 1954, and that just completely submerged the town. And, you know, some of the footage has just been really, really hard to watch. For example, I was watching some footage of an old woman who was on her roof of her house because the water had come all the way up. Yeah, And, you know, she had to leave her dog downstairs because she couldn't get the dog up onto the roof. And so she's just sitting up there by herself while a dog's drowning downstairs. Oh. It's just horrible. Yeah. Um, 22 people have died so far from these floods and just so much damage, so many homes, so many shops destroyed. And, yeah, it's just going to be a really big clean-up effort now. Yeah. And I hate to just pile on more of that, but there's also this a new mo- mosquito-borne virus, like so... Th- Japanese encephalitis virus and that's emerged now in Australia and that's blamed on the floods right? Yeah so I mean yeah it does feel like we're being pummeled from all sides here um, <laughs> because now it seems like all of this flooding has created extra wetlands that have attracted migratory water birds from Asia that are carrying this Japanese encephalitis virus Right. and all the extra water has also boosted mosquito numbers which are now spreading the virus to pigs and, and people. I mean, fortunately, most people who get this virus don't get symptoms, but in some people it can cause brain swelling. That's the encephalitis part. And that right. can be fatal and, and already two people have died from it. Oh, so look, we've, we've been talking on the podcast over the last few weeks that, you know, the IPCC reports uh, are showing that the effects of climate change, they're here now. They're no longer something that we can look forward to in the future. Mm. Um, and we can say, right, that these extreme events that are happening in Australia are being driven by climate change, right? It looks like that, yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, about 14 years ago, the Australian government commissioned this review called the Garneau Review to look at the potential impacts that climate change would have on Australia. And its models, even back then, showed that Australia was going to start experiencing long droughts broken by heavy rainfall periods. So they said that would mean more fires, more floods and more mosquito-borne diseases. Unfortunately, we, it seems like now we're just living that reality. And, you know, I wish there was something good that I could say here, but 
yeah, it's, it's scary yeah. and it just feels like it's just going to get worse. Now, after the horrors of COVID, Ukraine and wildfires, you'll be pleased to hear we're having a musical and cultural moment in the show. Yes. So um, I don't know if you've heard of the composer Hannah Peel. She does some really interesting stuff. She's been Emmy and Mercury Prize nominated. And we have an excuse to talk about her on this podcast. And that's because her work really crosses over between science and music. And I first heard of her when she did an album in 2017 called Mary Cassio Journey to Cassiopeia. Um, And it was about an elderly woman who was into astronomy who uh, finally fulfills her dream and travels into space. And Hannah is just about to release a new album called The Unfolding. And I had a chat with her and we got to play some clips from the album. Hannah, I'm delighted to have you on the show because I'm a big fan of your stuff. And I'm really fascinated by how you're influenced by neuroscience and cosmology and and just by nature. Um, Can you talk us through a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess I I find a lot of inspiration by my surroundings, you know, kind of going back a couple of years to a record that I had in 2016 called Awake But Always Dreaming. It was about my grandmother's dementia and kind of exploring the world's through what I believe she was living through because, you know, every day was a different kind of story with her. So I've gone from that scientific side. I think I got so much from that, like beneficial information that helped me process the grief as well of losing her that, you know, I was working with quite a lot of scientists and doing things with the Welcome Collection in London as well. And it's just stayed with me as as an interest. You know, I love the National Geographic magazines. I like reading about rocks and formations, particularly within this record, the new one. So yeah, I find that it's it gives me a way to apply our own human nature and emotion to things that are connected around us. Because I think we can forget about that as a society. I'll ignore that you mentioned National Geographic as a and not new scientist as a, one of your inspira- sources of inspiration. So we're going to hear a bit about the title track on the new album called The Unfolding. Uh, can you introduce it for us? Yes. So it's written for and it's performed by the Para Orchestra, who are based in Bristol. And they're like the world's only orchestra that integrate disabled, professional disabled musicians and non-disabled they challenge the ideas about how an orchestra should be right now. And they're a wonderful group of people to work for. And I wanted to write them something that explored the human spirit, explored our, our roots, because I feel like in the digital nomadness that we have right now, it's very hard to find a grounding. The unfolding in itself begins with a, a solo soprano voice, which is Victoria Oriwari. She's a blind singer. She uses Braille to perform with, but I did it without lyrics. I wanted to write something that was a wordless, universal language, almost like finding your voice for the first time. So um, it begins with her and then gradually the instruments come in as if like it is awakening, I guess, the first, first signs of life.
So that was the title track from Hannah Peel's new album, The Unfolding, with, as she, she says, the Parrot Orchestra. And it uses, it combines analogue and digital music, doesn't it? And the live orchestra. So can you tell us about what you're doing with all those things? Yeah, um, when I first got to know the Parrot Orchestra and they asked me if I would be interested in writing a piece, they gave me a list of instruments that was... It was so long, I didn't really know where to start. But what is wonderful about them is they they are very keen to combine their acoustic instrumentation, the digital instruments that they have, and the digital assistive instruments that a lot of the performers as well would use. So yeah, it was perfect for me that I'm always exploring that boundary anyway between electronic and acoustic instrumentation. So this felt like a perfect way to explore that with them. And we're going to hear another clip from another track. Uh, this is called We Are Part Mineral. What's this one about? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's exactly what it says. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to write something that was fun for them that felt like all the particles were were bouncing around and being explored between the sound and it just felt like something, you know, I, I didn't set out to write a tune called We Are Part Mineral. It just felt like once the music was written that those lyrics just came very naturally. Um, the video that goes with this is by a wonderful visual designer called Stefan uh, Goodchild. Uh, he's based in Bristol as well, actually, funny enough. And it explores all the different elements between water and fire and the earth. And it's a beautiful design that he's made for us. clip from The Unfolding, the new album by Hannah Peel and the Para Orchestra, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes for you to check out. That's it for this week. Uh, do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guests Hannah Peel and our reporters Alice Klein and Michael LePage. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now and take care. Bye. Bye. podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.